different sermons call for different goals. Sometimes when we encounter a passage, its message to us is to live or to act a different way. I want to state up front today that the hope, the aim, or the goal of this sermon is for us to be reminded of a few things. And in that memory, we might place ourselves in better relationship both with one another, but also with God. This story is a strange, strange story. Uh, It takes place in the midst of joy and turns tragic in a hurry. What I want to do this morning, though, is I want to tell a a different story that I've actually shared with you maybe two years ago or so, and based on the average uh, memory span of anyone here, I don't know who would remember this story. So we're going to share it again. This is when we were preaching about the tabernacle, and uh, so see if it jars your memory. But we're going to start today with uh, Van Halen. Any Van Halen fans in here? Uh, half, and it's like half shameful that you raised your hand in church for that. Uh, so here's, here's Van Halen, uh, David Lee Roth and crew. The story I want to tell is this, uh, well, by now it's legend, which is that all, all stars or all celebrities seem to have their own kind of whims and unrealistic desires, and when they would go on tour, they have all of these demands that they would place on each venue as to what they would need in the back room, uh, when folks would arrive and attend to them in certain ways. And Van Halen became famous for, does anybody know? Yes, Brad. Yes, so the M&M clause in their, in their contract writer. Uh, and this is, it's Article 126, and it's, it's in the middle of it, and it says there will be no brown M&Ms in the backstage area upon paying a forfeiture of the show with full compensation, uh, which seems a little bit extreme. They did a show one time in Pueblo, Colorado, at a university there, and the story goes that uh, Roth goes into the dressing room, sees a bowl full of M&Ms, finds a few brown M&Ms, and he says something to the Shakespearean effect of, what doth my eyes behold? And then he proceeds to trash the dressing room, dumping over the buffet car, kicking a hole through the door. Uh, And the story is that, and it gets printed in the papers after this, that stars are just sort of impetulant children. And uh, David Lee Roth did upwards of like $80,000 in damage to his dressing room because of this one silly clause. Classic rock star behavior, right? All of us in here sort of casting aspersions. Uh, okay, I want to tell that story. Hold that for a second. We're going to tell the story of our passage today along with it. Uh, there are these two priests uh, who are carrying the ark into the city of Jerusalem. And it says that on the way, when they came to the threshing floor of Nacon, Uzo, which is uh, one of these two, reached out and took hold of the ark of God because the oxen slipped. And the cart that was being pulled by the oxen, the the ark starts to fall. And so he grabs the ark because the oxen stumbled. The Lord's anger burned against Uzzah because of his irreverent act or his error. Therefore God struck him down and he died there beside the ark. If you read this passage, on its face value, you can start to make Uh, some quick assumptions about the God portrayed here. It seems 
like God is acting on some kind of whim or fancy. The way I thought of it is God here loses all chill. Right? Can you, can you see that? Because every time I read this passage and when I read it with new people, the first thing they ask is, why would God act this way? Why so angry? Why so fast? Why so extreme? Okay? Let's tell the stories one more time, though. When Van Halen was touring in the early 80s, for most of tours at that time, anybody who would venture out past main market, so into third-level markets, uh, they would bring with them a very small show. Typically, any, even the biggest rock groups would only have about two 18-wheelers worth of gear. Uh, but Van Halen, they decided to go on the road with nine 18-wheelers full. Uh, the shows were like nothing that had ever been seen before. And they would go to these venues, and the contract writer that they would bring with them, he said it was like reading the phone book. It was so thick and detailed. Uh, because the production was over the top. Uh, within all of these contract details was buried Article 126 about the M&Ms. And Article 126 was not about the M&Ms. It was about making sure that your venue paid attention to the contract. If you didn't read well and you set up Van Halen's show and not to their specifications, you, you could get in trouble. You could be in danger. So Roth says this about when he would go into the dressing rooms. He said, when I'd walk backstage, if I saw a brown M&M in the bowl, well, then I would line check the entire production. Guaranteed you're going to arrive at a technical error. They didn't read the contract. Guaranteed you'd run into a problem. Sometimes it would threaten to destroy the whole show. Sometimes, literally, it would be life-threatening. It was never about the M&Ms for Roth. It was about paying attention. What they were doing with their shows was dangerous and it was new. And if the venues didn't read carefully and didn't follow instructions, then people could be in danger. So the M&Ms were a tell. It was like a canary in the coal mine. He could walk in, he could look, and he could see. And if it was, if it was there, then he knew something was wrong. So when he went into that dressing room in, in Pueblo, California, or Colorado, and he saw those M&Ms, he did go a little bit rock star crazy and did a few thousand dollars worth of damage. But the other part of that story is that the university had just built a soft basketball floor and they had not read the contract about how heavy the show was going to be. So when they set the stage and the lights, the entire concert sunk down into the brand new floor, causing about $80,000 worth of damage. It had nothing to do with the dressing room. They weren't paying attention and put everybody in danger. It wasn't a whim or a spoiled and petulant rock star, uh, it was a way to check and see if the show could go on. Exodus 25. Let's look at the contract writer. This is the story in Exodus when they get the instructions on how to build the tabernacle, which will house the Ark of the Covenant. The Ark is what's on the ox cart in our story today. But I want to read for you just a little bit, and you'll see the section here. Have them make an ark of acacia wood, two and a half cubits long, a cubit and a half wide, a cubit and a half high. Overlay it with pure gold, both inside and out, and make a gold molding around it. Cast four gold rings for it and fasten them 
to its four feet, with two gold rings on each side and two rings on the other. Then make poles of acacia wood and overlay them with gold. Insert the poles into the rings on the side of the ark to carry it. The poles are to remain on the rings of the ark, and they are never to be removed. Then put the ark in the ark, the tablets of the covenant law, which I will give you. Make an atonement cover of pure gold, two and a half cubits long, cubit and a half wide. Make two cherubim out of hammered gold on the ends of the cover. Make sure that there's enough voltage for the amperage and there's enough outlets to hold it and make sure that the girders can support about three. You get what's happening here. This is a lot of detail that you have to pay attention to. Insert the poles into the rings of the sides of the ark so that the priests may carry it. And they are never to be removed. What seems like an unforeseen whim of God that strikes Uzzah looks different when you know the background. They set the ark of God, this is verse 3 of chapter 6 of Second Samuel, they set the ark of God on a new cart and brought it from the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill. Now Uzzah and Ahio, sons of Abinadab, were guiding the new cart with the ark of God on it. And Ahio was walking in front of it. And David and all of Israel were celebrating with all of their might before the Lord, with castanets, harps, lyres, timbrels, sistrums, and cymbals. When they came to the threshing floor of Nacon, Uzzah reached out and took hold of the ark, because the oxen stumbled. The Lord's anger burned against Uzzah because of his error and struck him down. What was the ark doing on that cart? They had been given specific instructions on how to carry this thing around. Poles inserted in four rings, and the priests are to carry it, to lift it with their very bodies. If you remember, the ark had been captured earlier in 1 Samuel and then taken into Philistine territory for a bit. And when it was there, they placed it sort of among their gods. And at one point, the god Dagon, uh, their idol, they, they walk away. And when they walk back into the room, their god has fallen on its face, this statue in front of the ark. And so they set it back up, and they leave, and they come back. And then the thing has fallen back on its face as though it's worshiping the ark, and they, a plague breaks out, and they say, we do not want this thing anymore. So through the course of events, Abinadab and his family, they end up with the ark. They have it for 30 years. Somewhere over the course of that time, they start uh, to lose their way. They quit paying attention. They, they seem to forget what it is that they have, what, it, what is in their midst. The ox cart was the newest in Philistine technology. It was this new invention by their enemy to move things around with ease. But the ark was never to be carried like this. This is what happens when God becomes afloat in your parade. Uzzah and his brother were to be carrying this thing in, but instead they are driving it forth. The language there, the word there in Hebrew, is it's as though the ark and the cart are like sheep in a flock. They are playing the wrong role in this parade, as though the show were about them. When the thing stumbles and he goes to reach out for it, that is not uh, something that happens by accident. That is a lifetime of actions moved into a moment. It is an instinct that has been developed. 
by Uzzah, of carelessness, lack of reverence. We see a moment or a picture, but there is a lot more going on here. David realizes that they are playing with fire and sends the ark away for three months and then calls it back in. We have to remember what the ark represented. It was not a magic box. It didn't have powers. It had a story. Inside of the ark were these testaments to God's movement among the people. It held the law. It held Aaron's staff. It held manna from the wilderness. It was a reminder that God was strong, but that also that God was with them. There were these two cherubim on the top of the ark, and it was as though the presence of God rested there. Now, not only there, but especially there. The people of Israel have always, had always had a complicated, intense relationship with their God. It started when they were rescued from Egypt. Pharaoh was in charge of them, was their master, and he was cruel. They were slaves, but they knew the rules of the game. Now when Yahweh shows up and takes and rescues them with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm... There is a scene that happens in the 14th chapter of Exodus, which is the sea crossing. And the Israelites are being driven across the sea, and God is in front of them and behind them. And then behind them in the distance is all of Egypt's army. You remember this story? And the Israelites, they make it through. But as soon as Pharaoh and his chariots and his army enter into the sea, the waters, they collapse. And in case we miss it, Everyone is destroyed by the might of God. The entire superpower of Egypt wiped out. And you might think that this is just a good news story, but uh, if if you're Israel and you're standing on one side of the shore and everything you've known of power and might is dead and the past is gone... And the only thing you're left with is the God who roars from thunder and clouds, ready to lead you out into the middle of nowhere. You do not feel safe and secure. You're not quite sure what you have invited into your midst. They wander through the wilderness. They enter into the mountain of Sinai. And the entire camp waits at the bottom, and Moses goes up to the top, and God shows up at the top of the mountain and thunder and lightning and fire and smoke. And the people say, you, you go up there and you talk to whoever is up there, because we're not going. And God says, be careful. Tell them to be careful. Tell the priests to consecrate themselves, because if they move too far forward and they cross the line, then I might break out against them. It's the same word as what happens to Uzzah, that God breaks out against him. And so they have this tense relationship with their God. The question that follows them is when the holy arrives in their midst, will they be ready? The preparations for the tabernacle, which becomes the home for the ark and then the place where God's presence rests, it takes a long time to build, and the contract writer is thick as a phone book. 
At the end of the story of Exodus, it says that God's presence, God's Shekinah, it, it, it descends and it rests in the camp with the people. And this is both good news and it's terrifying news at the same time. Because having God in your midst does not mean that you control this God. Having an ark with a cherubim where it says that the, the presence of God rested does not mean that you have now created a box that God fits in, sits in, stays in, is safe. Thirty years, Abinadab and his sons watched after the ark. I wonder at what point it felt safe. It felt routine. And they got careless. The story happens in two parts. There's Uzzah's part. But then on the other side of the story is praise and jubilation. It is wild dancing. One side is a death. The other side is life overflowing. David had been in the wilderness for a long time. He had been running from Saul, his enemy, and the only reason that he was alive still was because God was with him. Read all of the Psalms attributed to David and you will see this. And so when the ark is headed into Jerusalem, this is the height of David's path and journey. He's not been careless at any point along the way, but knows exactly how strong and powerful this God is who he is serving. Because of that, he turns into a wild man. It seems like he loses control. But he serves a God who he's never tried to control. The kind of worship that spills forth, and we talked about this on Monday when we planned for worship today, uh, we do a pretty good job, and y'all sounded amazing, everyone who played up here. Um, But for the most part, the kind of thing that David does in the sixth chapter of 2 Samuel is not the kind of worship that we participate in here on a regular basis. It's just not. Uh, Someone asked me, are you going to dance up on the, the stage? And I said, no. For lots of reasons. Uh, some of them, because it would be weird and distracting, and then it would give you something to laugh at, not with me, but at me. But the other one, if I'm being honest, is that it would feel contrived. I could try and gin it up. We could try and, you know, if we all started clapping at the same time, if we all played the right kind of music the right kind of rhythm set in, then we could maybe work up an experience. But David is not working up an experience. David has experienced the Lord. One person says, the deaf will always hate those who dance. Which makes me wonder why it would be so scary to dance. Now ask somebody who's been in the wilderness. 
has been running from cave to cave to cave just to survive. And the only reason that they are surviving is because God is with them. Imagine, and maybe it's you, where your very existence hinges on whether or not God provides, sustains. There are moments for those so fortunate where praise and singing and dancing and undignified actions are just second nature, instinctual. I want to let you listen to something uh, because this is what I think David sounds like. It's this woman named Amina Brown, and she's a, a poet, um, and she, she gives this poem uh, over this bit of music called He Is Here. And, and as I listened to it this week and listened to it again this morning, it sounds like what David might have sounded like. Listen, and we'll continue. He's right here, in this room, in your heart. He is near, nearer than breath, heartbeat. Nearer than you are to you, closer than second chance, or next opportunity, closer than tonight or yesterday. He is real, more real than touch, see, hear, smell, or taste. More real than reality, he is our reality. More real than joy, pain, sorrow or the love of being in love. He is present like space, wind, time, silence, night. He is waiting like creation, like words on the tip of tongue, like songs that have yet to be sung. He is beauty and oranges, blues, every hue, every shade, sunset and sunrise, whisper his name. He is holy, cannot be touched, explained like sweet seconds of prayer, like grandmother on knees, wood floor bare. He is old hymns, the extending of limbs, stretch across trees, stripes to heal disease. He is sun, distinctly three, distinctly one, the only one, the only wise, the only resurrector of lives. He is king. And no earthly throne can house him. No amount of elegant words can espouse him. He is moment and voice, power of choice in word and deed, in fruit and seed, nailed hands, nailed feet, innocent wounds that bleed. He is believe. He is all. He is call and purpose. Everything we can sacrifice, he's worth it and more, much more. Our good deeds are mere pities. We'll never even score. He is behold 
the ark makes it into the city. David's son, Solomon, builds a temple. And in the temple, they place the ark as far inside, behind as many walls and curtains as they can build. And only one person is allowed to go in there, only once a year. Develops around this ark in the presence of God all of the reverence that might protect the people and would give them a way to connect. They keep it all under lock and key. And it stays there. God stays there until the people are destroyed for their rebellion and the temple is destroyed. They always have this memory and this sense that what God is and what we are, there needs to be some space so that one does not overwhelm and consume the other. What it is about us, about humans, that makes us assume that we are made of the stuff that can approach whatever the stuff is that God is. We are bold to do so, foolish at times to do so. I'm always reminded of the line from Annie Dillard that when we come to worship, we should wear the crash helmets because what we are doing is is intense or a serious business. The God who David worshipped, the God who saved David, uh, has never been and will never be safe. So holiness moved a little bit away, a little removed. So how do we approach? What makes us able to enter in to that space? To make Space in this place, in your life, in our community, for the actual living God. Not an idea, not a prop, but holiness or glory. When the Bible talks about glory, the word is for something to be so heavy or weighted, as though with gravity it bends the ark of the universe. What makes us think that we can invite this in? The writer of the book of Hebrews. Listen. Therefore, brothers and sisters, therefore, brothers and sisters, Since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and a living way opened for us through the curtain that is his body. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near 
to God with a sincere heart and with full assurance that faith brings, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how we might spur one another toward love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together, encouraging one another all the more as we see the day approaching. Let us draw near to God with sincere hearts. God has not changed, but is wild and uncontrollable. We are the ones who have changed. Because whatever Christ has done has made us of a different sort of stuff. So that all of those walls and all of those curtains are no longer quite necessary to keep us from being consumed from what we would say is holy. So let us approach with boldness. Let us walk forward with God in our midst. A God who is dangerous, has always been dangerous. But if we pay attention, if we are careful, we might become dangerous in all of the ways that this world needs. Let us pray. Almighty, all-powerful, all-wise and all-loving God, I am a man of unpure lips who come from a people of unpure hearts. So purify me and purify us. Take the careless parts of us who have forgotten who you are. Disrupt, invade, Consume all that is false, that we might move forward in confidence. We make space in our lives and work to make space in this community for your presence to abide. So abide with us now in all of our days. Hear our prayer. Amen.